Hello and welcome to another episode of the Thinking Christian Podcast. This is episode number nine. I'm your host, Dane Kramer, coming to you live. <laughs> of course I'm live. I'm recording this live. Now, you're not listening to it live, although you're alive when you're listening to it, but it's not. you're not listening to an actual live broadcast. I've recorded this, this podcast in my office in front of my computer, and I'm going to upload it, and you can uh, listen to it at your leisure. How's that sound? All right. You can tell I'm already running out of things to say. <laughs> um, if you'd like to know more about me, I don't know why you would, uh, or this podcast, just go to thethinkingchristian.us. That's thethinkingchristian.us, and there you'll be directed to my website. You can check out the resources that I have available for you. Um, you can find a listing of all the previous podcasts, and you can listen there on the website, or you can just go to um, the various um, platforms that host or provide this website such as Stitcher or iTunes or Google Play and you can subscribe there or subscribe from my uh, website so that the next podcast that comes out it'll be just downloaded to your computer or device and you'll you'll be good to go. Also feel free to leave a comment on my website or anywhere of those locations if you like or dislike uh, these podcasts if something that you object to. Um, If I've crossed the line into heresy please feel free to make mention of that so others will be warned not to listen to this so i think it's a good idea uh last week we talked about the um differences between roman catholicism and protestantism and as uh if you haven't listened to that go back i would encourage you to go back and listen to that before you listen to today's podcast but the differences as i outlined them really boil down to one and that is authority uh roman catholics of course view the current pope uh, as the person that Jesus has ordained to be in that position of authority, and his uh, his leadership is recognized, he he um, he sets uh, the pace for the church, and the church follows. Now, Protestants typically don't recognize the Pope as an authority in the church. They don't recognize that Jesus gave that authority to him, and therefore don't listen to the Pope. Not that we dislike the Pope; he may be a great guy. But we just don't see him as authoritative, and generally uh, po- um, Protestants see the Bible as authoritative because in there we have the teachings of the apostles, whom Jesus himself had recognized as uh, teaching the church. And so that's the main difference. And all the other differences between Roman Catholicism and Protestantism sort of stem from that main difference of authority. So today's episode is trick-or-treating with Marty Luther. <laughs> of course, that was... I picked that title to um, you know draw you in. I guess it did because here you are, sucker. <laughs> I guess I shouldn't be insulting my audience. Sorry about that. Um, but uh, you know, October thirty first in the uh, in the states is is Halloween and is celebrated. I guess by people who like doing that through um, trick or treating. Uh, but it, that's a significant date in church history, for it was on October 31st, uh, 1516, that Martin Luther tacked the 95 Thesis to the door at uh, Wittenberg, Wittenberg University. And I'll talk about that a little bit later. So it's a significant date in church history. And I guess Martin Luther was probably wearing a costume at the time. I don't know. Um, but um, all right, let's, uh, let's get started with uh, today's episode, episode number nine. And I want to talk about um, how how the Reformation or the Protestant movement began. Of course, Protestant. The word Protestant means it comes from the word Protestant, 
those they were protestant protesting against the Roman Catholic Church and would be called Protestants as a result of that. And we'll talk about all of that a little bit later. But to begin with, let's kind of Let's kind of set the stage. I want to talk about how the Roman Catholic Church formed um, because it's, it's good to know that so that we know a little bit as to how the breakaway from the Roman Catholic Church happened. Now, of course, the, the, the church, the church is, is often credited as beginning in uh, Acts chapter 2 when the Holy Spirit was poured out on the church. Uh, there among the apostles, but that happened in Jerusalem, not in Rome in Italy. It happened in Jerusalem, and the church sort of, sort of in a sense, began there in Acts chapter two in Jerusalem. And the apostles eventually would spread out and take the gospel message um, to Jews everywhere, and eventually to Gentiles everywhere. And uh, but by the end of the first century, it seems that all of the apostles, or at least most of the apostles, have died off. Uh, John is believed to have lived the longest. He made it. He might have made it into the early part of the second century, and then he too died. Now, after the death of the apostles, the leadership mantle seems to have been passed on to the bishop. Now, the word bishop is an English word, and it comes from the Greek word episkopos. And episkopos just means overseer, somebody who oversees. Um, and um, an interesting phenomena seems to occur in the early 2nd century, and it's really kind of hard for me to describe this without commenting on it, and I'll do my best. But um, in the early 2nd century, we do see sort of a significant rise of these bishops. Um, you know, the apostles are, are, are gone now, and the church needs leaders. And so these bishops or these overseers kind of stand up and, and take over this role. Now, the interesting part about this phenomenon is that the church really begins to recognize these people as leaders in whom we must obey, uh, the leaders in whom we must listen to. Uh, one of the early church fathers, a man by the name of Ignatius, uh, in the letters that he wrote to the various churches, uh, he recommended that no wedding be conducted without a bishop present, no uh, communion be performed without a bishop present. Now, I'm not so sure that the apostles would have agreed with that, but that's what he said, and the church kind of kind of jumped in suit. And I'm not saying it's wrong either. I don't know if it's wrong or right. It just it just happened that way. But these these overseers rose to uh, a position of prominence and with some authority in the early churches, and in time. Uh, there was different pockets of, of Christianity that were starting to develop. There were schools of Christianity. For example, there was one in Alexandria, Egypt. Um, there was one in uh, Antioch. There was one in Rome uh, where these churches began to grow and thrive, and these bishops uh, took on significant roles. These overseers took on roles of, of leadership in which the church would in time really kind of submit to. Now, in time, the church in Rome... Uh, and the bishop in Rome uh, took on real special significance. And I'm just kind of really quickly giving you a thumbnail sketch of this. This is not a detailed account of it by any stretch of the imagination. But uh, there were different factors involved, but the church in Rome really kind of rose uh, to prominence. Now, one of the most significant factors, I believe, involved in, in the rise of the, the Roman church was um, or occurred when Constantine, when Constantine moved the Roman Empire from Rome in Italy in the west to Constantinople in the east. And this created sort of a power vacuum in the west. You know, the, the government was no longer there. And so the bishop 
in Rome kind of stepped up to kind of fill in that, that vacuum, that, that emptiness. The, the, the government was not there, and, and here we have this very prominent leader in a city which now recognizes Christianity. You know, At one time, Rome persecuted the Christians, but when Constantine became Christian, that persecution pretty well dried up. And so this, uh, this Christian leader stepped up to kind of help the state out in a way because the state was no longer there. Now, um, one of the significant developments with that is that uh, we have in um, a, a pope or bishop, we'll call him bishop, maybe a pope, I'm not sure, Bishop Leo, he marched out uh, to meet Attila the Hun and uh, dissuaded him from attacking Rome. I mean, this is very significant. We have this this church leader meeting Attila the Hun and persuading him not to, to take the city. Um, and so this is very prominent, and this is a very significant event. And so this and many other events, uh, the churches began to look towards Rome for leadership. And the, and the bishop in Rome eventually be, became the pope. Uh, and Pope just means Papa or Father, and so the the bishop became the Pope, and he and, and and you know maybe it was a gradual overtaking, but eventually the whole church recognized that the that the bishop in Rome, whoever was the bishop in Rome, was the leader of the church, and it became the Roman Catholic Church. Then in 1054 A.D., another significant event in church history, the church in the East. Um, excommunicated the church in the West, and the church in the West excommunicated the church in the East, and, and a big split happened. And in 1054 AD, the Greek Orthodox Church kind of broke off and became another arm of the church. And so we have the, the Greek Church in the East, we have the Latin or the Western Church in the West, the Roman Catholic Church in the West. And for quite some time, if you were born in Western Europe, you were born Roman Catholic. And there was no other option. Uh, you were baptized as an infant, and your baptism celebrated your entrance into the Roman Catholic Church and at the same time into the state. And so, I mean, I guess the only option would be if you decide to leave Western Europe. Uh, that would be about it. But if you were in Western Europe, you were Roman Catholic. Um, I mean, I guess there, there was the Coptic churches um, in Northern Africa. And uh, and again, you could be Eastern Orthodox in the East. Um, but that's it. There, there was no other option. And so we get into the Middle Ages, um, early Middle Ages uh, time frame, and you know, a lot going on. And as you probably know, uh, the church became very corrupt um, in a lot of different ways and levels. There were, there were good Christians. There were good Christian people in this time frame. But the church um, also had seen its share of corruption. And, and this is not just a Protestant saying this. I mean, I've read Roman Catholic history or history from a Roman Catholic point of view. And Roman Catholics will admit that the church needed reform. It needed to be changed. It, it, it started to um, just become corrupt. Um, it became opulent at times. Uh, it became wealthy and powerful people took positions and they didn't always do very godly things. And so the corruption in the church in the West really became very noticeable to, to people who well, understood scripture, I guess you could say. And um, there were some efforts made by people to reform the church. But the church wasn't really welcoming to those suggestions of reform. Uh, one of the first ones to talk about would be a man by the name of uh, John Wycliffe. And um, he, uh, he believed, well, he challenged the, the Catholic doctrine on a, uh, on a number of things. Uh, one was transubstantiation. 
That's the um, the doctrine that the, the Roman Catholic Church had, that the wine and the cup uh, taken during communion uh, literally became the, the literal body and blood of Jesus. John Wycliffe kind of challenged that, which that challenge is kind of consistent with modern-day Protestantism. I wouldn't call him necessarily a Protestant, but but he certainly was protesting. Um, he also believed very firmly that the Scripture belonged to the true body of believers and not the institutional church. And this was really the start, in, in a way, of the Reformation. I mean, he, he challenged uh, the church on a number of these issues, and uh, he died of natural causes in 1384. The church later declared John Wycliffe a heretic, and of course, when they do that, they dug up his body, which was rotting in the grave somewhere, and they burned it and scattered the ashes. I mean, and that really, <laughs> that really uh, showed John Wycliffe, who was boss, huh? Uh, um, again, this is the Middle Ages. It was a crazy time, a lo- uh, just a crazy time, and, and so I guess not a stretch uh, for that for that particular time. Another um, man who was uh, sort of uh, prominent in the Reformation uh, was a man by the name of Jan Hus. Uh, he was a Czech, uh, sometimes known by his uh, English name Jan Hus or John Hus, but Jan Hus was a, a Czech theologian who was influenced by the writings of Wycliffe. So he came a little bit later. And he read Wycliffe, was influenced by his thinking, and he went a little further. Uh, he began to denounce uh, the moral failings of, of the, the clergy and the bishops, and he even attacked the papacy. Now, uh, so he was a little more brazen in his um, efforts to reform the church and his criticisms of the church. Now, again, the church is not really welcoming to this. It's not like they want to sit down and, and talk about it. Um, and uh, Jan Hus was invited to come to um, a council. It was called the Council of Constance, where he would be. Um, well, I don't know what he thought was going to happen, but he was he was offered what is called safe conduct. Um, and this is a little unknown, at least unknown to me, exactly how it's happened because I heard different historians describe how it went down. Um, but basically, he, the safe conduct meaning he could come to and from the council without risk of being arrested or, or molested by the church. Um, some historians say that he was only promised safe conduct to the council. Uh, some suggest that uh, he never really saw the safe conduct document itself. You know, So it's not really clear to me what happened. But he did go to the Council of Constance, and he wasn't able to, to really defend himself. He just simply uh, was asked if he would recant. Um, and he said, well, you know, I'll rec- recant if you show the, my errors from the Bible. But again, they're not interested in conversation with Jan Hus. And uh, eventually he was arrested. Uh, he was convicted as a heretic because he would not recant some of his ideas. He was burned at the stake on July 6, 1415. And um, that ended his efforts at Reformation. Now, in 1483, um, Martin Luther was born. And Martin Luther, from the accounts that I've read, you know, was really a, a bit of a rebel rouser in his younger years. Uh, he, he caroused, he drank. Uh, he certainly was not a man who was seeking after God in his early years. And it was on July 2nd, 1505, uh, Martin Luther was uh, coming home from something, and uh, it, a thunderstorm was taking place, and apparently a, a crack of lightning uh, landed so close to him that it scared him, and he threw himself to the ground, and he cried out to St. Anne, saying something like, save me and I'll become a monk. And he did return home okay, so he made it, and surprisingly, he kept his promise. He went into the monastery. He became an Augustinian monk. 
and uh, threw himself into his studies. And eventually, in 1508, he was um, sent to teach at uh, Wittenberg University. So he became a professor there at Wittenberg. Now, I'm not sure at what stage Martin Luther's conversion came, but it is important to note that, you know, he became a monk. He, he devoted his life to God, and he took that kind of seriously, uh, very seriously. Um, in fact, he was trying to find God. Um, he wanted to have a relationship with God. He wanted to know God. He wanted peace with God, and he couldn't get it. And he tried. I mean, he, he, he tried everything he knew how. He would go on long fasts. He would make pilgrimages to, to Jerusalem. He would lie on cold stone slabs at night. Um, he would uh, participate in self-flagellation. I mean, he, he injured himself thinking that if he, just, if, he, he, if he did this, God, he would get God's attention. And uh, in the end, he just he, he, he couldn't get it. I mean, he, just, he felt like he was as far away from God as when he had started, and he was very frustrated. And I think he was going about half mad from this because he just couldn't get it. Now, from what I um, read from one historian, kind of interesting, uh, he, he describes it as uh, Martin Luther one day was actually on the toilet. And he's reading from Romans chapter 1, and he hits verse 17. And there Paul, quoting an Old Testament passage, says, The just shall live by faith. And suddenly the light bulb goes on. Suddenly Martin Luther gets it, that all of this work that he had been trying to do to get to God was never going to work. And the only way he could ever get to God if he just simply believed if he, if he placed his faith in God. And I think at that moment, Martin Luther was converted. I mean, that's, that's when his conversion happened, when he began to trust God. From what I understand, he um, instantly became a very popular lecturer at Wittenberg. Uh, he was lecturing on Psalms and Romans, and I think Galatians. I know Psalms and Romans for sure. But he was um, lecturing on these passages, and he, uh, he, he his, his lectures became electrifying. I mean, the man became extremely popular. And if our story ended right there, I mean, it would be good enough. Martin Luther was converted and, and life was poured into his life and, you know, that would be fine. But it, it doesn't end there. What happens next on our chronological order of things is in 1516, a man by the name of Johann Tetzel was commissioned by the Roman Catholic Church in the sale of indulgences. Now, an indulgence is something that had been going on for some time in the Roman Catholic Church, and I believe it's still part of the Roman Catholic doctrine, although not medieval indulgences, or at least this type. But in a nutshell, an indulgence is uh, is trusting the church um, for a good work that you're not able to give yourself. Um, I mean, that, that I don't understand it completely, but that's uh, close enough for, for this podcasts, I think. But what the church did is um, the Pope in Rome needed some money to complete a, a building uh, a building uh, project. And so he commissioned this Johann Tetzel to go out and collect indulgences. They actually sold indul- indulgences. And, and, and in particular, this was to get people's loved ones out of purgatory. Uh, so if you had a loved one that was in purgatory, and of course you didn't know if they were or not, you could pay the church and the church would get them out of purgatory and get them into heaven. Uh, you know, you couldn't trust your own good works for this, but the church had enough good works. And if you paid the church, they could do the good works and get this person out of purgatory. 
And Johann Tetzel was um, apparently a very flamboyant man who uh, had a great sales pitch and was rating, uh, was was raking in the bucks for uh, the Roman Catholic Church. Now Martin Luther caught wind of this and he was incensed. I mean, he just thought this was ridiculous. Especially, you know, now he had been converted and he realized that salvation didn't come by works and it came by faith. I don't think he's hammered out all of his the- theology just yet. He will in time. But uh, he was angered at this the sale of indulgences and thought that uh, it was taking advantage of the people's misunderstanding. And so what he did on October 31st, 1516, Martin Luther um, posted his 95 thesis on the Wittenberg door, um, or the door at the university. Now, this is maybe not as significant as it sounds. Um, this was something that was commonly done. A uh, professor maybe was make, was posting his ideas, um, maybe a challenge to debate, and he was basically posting this like on a community bulletin board is really what it was. I don't think Martin Luther was really looking for a fight, but he, he posted his objections, and these were objections to indulgences, to the sale of indulgences, I should say. Uh, Martin Luther was not expecting a reformation at this point. Um, he felt he was right. And um, and he posted his points on the bulletin board in Wittenberg. Um, now, what happened was that was taken down uh, at some point. It was translated into German. Uh, it had been published in Latin. It was translated into German, and it was distributed. And so, and in fact, it was said that within two weeks, all of Germany had read it, and within two months, all of Europe had read his his arguments. I think it got out of hand for Martin Luther. He wasn't expecting quite that response. Um, but it did cause an impact, and I think Martin Luther was low enough on the totem pole for the church to decide to go after. I mean, they thought, you know what, we can't have this guy, this this monk, this Augustinian monk at the Wittenberg making these kind of objections. It's going to look bad for the church. And so um, he was asked to recant. He was asked to step down from this, and um, he refused. It was around June or July of 1519, uh, a few years later, after the thesis were, were uh, printed and 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 just circulated, that Luther held a public debate with a man by the name of Johann uh, Johann Eck, E-C-K, Eck, Johann Eck. Um, and I, from what I understand, Luther beat Eck on the issues of indulgences. I mean, Luther had the scripture on his side, and I think he had uh, truth on his side, and, and he, there was, he was no match for Eck in terms of the scriptural points that he was trying to make. However, Eck did, did something rather brilliant on, on his own part in this public debate, and that is he uh, got Luther to confess that he sided with Jan Hus, now, Jan Hus, again, we mentioned him before, he was a kind of a, a pre-Reformation Reformationist. I mean, before the Reformation really began, he was a person who had some ideas against the church. And so Eck drew Luther into this uh, part of the debate and actually got him to confess. I think the line in German is, ja, ich bin Hussite, uh, meaning, yes, I am a Hussite. Uh, Hussite uh, is the follower of, of Hus. And... I guess the place went berserk when he said it because what Luther did was sided with a heretic, with a man who had been deemed a heretic, I should say. So uh, this put Luther in deeper water. Um, you know, now he's he's siding with a heretic, and eventually, in 1521, 
Martin Luther is excommunicated by the church. He refuses to recant, and, and Luther just kind of digs in his heels even more. I mean, uh, the pressure gets on him. He doesn't back down. I think his, his, some of his, his theology is beginning to form. He was influenced by Wycliffe's writings and, and um, Huss uh, as well. And um, so I think Luther is digging in for a fight, but I would have to think this guy is getting scared too because you don't take on the Roman Catholic Church. In uh, April of 1521, after his excommunication, Luther is summoned to the Diet of Worms. It's, it looks like Diet of Worms, but it's called a Diet of Worms in the city of Worms, W-O-R-M-S. And he has also promised a safe conduct passage. And the church says, you know, you know, you can you can come in and, and go home. Now, why Luther ever accepted it? Because he knew that um, Jan Hus's safe conduct passage uh, or promise was not kept by the church. They arrested him, and I think their reasoning was, well, we don't keep promises to heretics. So Luther probably had no confidence that he was going to return home from this. But he did go to the Diet, um, and there the emperor of Rome appeared. He had already been excommunicated from the church. Now it was a state issue. The state had to take care of him. And as he, he enters this hallway, um, all of his books and his writings are spread out in front of him uh, on a table. And he's asked if these are his writings. He says that they are, and he's asked to recant. Now, from what I understand, Luther, he kind of gulps, and he kind of swallows. He, he has a moment. In fact, he says he needs a day. And so it's recessed for 24 hours, and Luther comes back the next day, and he's asked, will you recant? And uh, this is the moment of truth for him. Um, you know, does he stand by it or does he recant? Uh, if he stands by it, Luther knows he's a dead man because uh, the church is not uh, tolerant to, to voices of uh, opposition like this. And he says, uh, part, of, part of his very famous quote is, I cannot and will not recant anything since it is neither safe nor right to go against conscience. May God help me. Um, is his quote. He refuses to recant. And I think Luther realizes he just signed his own death warrant by doing that. Now, he is allowed to return home, and this is where the story gets really kind of crazy. He's on his way home uh, from this diet. Uh, he's a dead man. I mean, he's a walking dead man. He's, he, he, you know, you just don't take on the Catholic Church. But there are two factors in Luther's world that are really worth pointing out that, that change things for him. Two factors that were not in place when John, when John Wycliffe was around and or Jan Hus was around. Uh, two factors that are extremely important. One is that the Roman, the Roman, Holy Roman Empire, Empire was not like it used to be, um, and, and in that, in that, that the individual states were now each taking on their own kind of national brand. Spain was becoming Spanish, you know. French was coming, France was becoming French, and the Germans were becoming German. Um, they were beginning to. Uh, to undertake their own national pride, their own national feelings. Uh, rather than seeing themselves as part of this Holy Roman Empire, they, the individual countries were really starting to, to form and take on their own personalities, and that's very significant. And the second of these very notable uh, developments is a, a development of technology, and that is that the printing press had been invented. And when Luther wrote things like the 95 Thesis, uh, they no longer had to be copied by hand. Rather, these could be uh, typeset and printed and distributed very quickly. And so Luther's fame, Luther's uh, popularity had really spread like wildfire. 
and he had friends everywhere. One of those friends was a, a man by the name of Frederick the Wise. He was a prince um, in Germany. And um, Frederick the Wise had taken a liking uh, to Martin Luther. And as Luther is returning home from the Diet of Worms, uh, Frederick has a band of knights. They're kind of like the Navy SEALs of his day. They sweep in on his caravan. Uh, they grab Luther and they and they kidnap him. Uh, it's it's said that it, it happens so fast that it's uh, easier to. I mean, by the time you talk about it, it's it's over. It's done that fast. And I'm thinking Luther is probably thinking at the time, this is it. You know, these are the soldiers who have come for me. They've come to uh, to kill me. But instead, they kidnap him and they take him off to the uh, to a castle in Wartburg. And um, Frederick the Wise even said, I don't I don't want to know where he is. Just take him and, and tuck him away somewhere. And they wouldn't even tell him where he was so that when later when the emperor would ask um, Frederick the Wise where he was, he could say, I don't know. And he was telling the truth. He didn't know because he didn't know where Luther was. So Luther went into disguise. He grew out a beard, um, and um, which was sort of thumbing his nose at the Roman Catholic Church. Of course, monks were clean-shaved, but he put on a beard. In fact, if you look at a lot of the reformers, they, they have beards. I think it's their way of just, you know, Thumb of their nose at the church, saying, we'll do it our way. But uh, for about two years, Luther was in the uh, Wartburg Castle, and he continued to write. He translated the uh, Bible into German, Luther's Bible, it's known by. And um, his popularity just continued to grow. And eventually what happened is that the Roman Catholic Church couldn't contain the damages any longer. Luther's writings were being circulated too widely. The, um, the states in the Holy Roman Empire were beginning to break off in a sense and become their own national entities. And it was just too much. They couldn't contain it any longer. They couldn't even find Luther to kill him. And the movement was just getting too big for them. Eventually then, as a result of all of this, um, some choice was available to those in Western Europe. Um, those who were protesting against the Roman Catholic Church, they became Protestants. And um, in, in particular, they were Lutherans, and named after, of course, Martin Luther. So that if the prince who was governing the area in which you lived, if he became Lutheran, then you would be Lutheran. Um, if you became Roman Catholic, of course, you were still Roman Catholic. And I guess the only way to avoid that is you had to move to a, a providence that was Lutheran, that was non-Roman Catholic. And for, so for the first time, we have uh, this breakaway of the Roman Catholic Church in Western Europe, this Protestant movement who was no longer recognizing the Pope as authoritative in the church life. And all of this happened, I believe, because people read the scriptures. They could read the Bible. You know, the Reformation would never have happened had not men like Wycliffe and Huss and Luther not been exposed to the scriptures. The common peasant in their day had no access to the scriptures. They were only told by the people who had it what it said. And they were told that they couldn't understand it. You know, I know um, men and women today in their 40s and 50s can remember growing up in the Roman Catholic Church, and you were never at that time encouraged to read the Bible on your own. Thanks to Vatican II, it's, it's acceptable and it's encouraged now. 
And I think when we begin to think for ourselves, when we begin to study the scriptures, that's when true reform begins to happen. It starts in us, and it spreads outward. At the Thinking Christian Podcast, I'm all about thinking. You know, just being able to to walk through the issues and not to accept something just because someone says it so, but to accept it if it's true, if it conforms to reality. And I believe the basis for our reality, the basis for truth, comes from God's Word. And that's where the Reformation started, when people were exposed to the Word of God. Next week, I'm going to talk about another real bright and shiny moment in the, in the Reformation when some very brave men and women took God's Word and began to live it. And I think it's one of the most thrilling stories of the Reformation period. But until then, this is Dane Kramer from the Thinking Christian Podcast, signing off. Thanks for joining me.